Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIG Phase 1 and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Seth Rotz, Director of Childhood Cancer Survivorship Program at Cleveland Clinic Children's. He's here today to talk to us about childhood cancer survivorship. So welcome, Seth. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. So maybe to start out, give us a little idea. What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic Children's? Yeah, so I I have two main roles. Um, The first thing is I treat uh, children with blood cancers, leukemias and lymphomas, and do bone marrow transplant. And then the other hat I wear is um, I run our survivorship program. So taking care of folks that are now long-term cancer survivors and trying to think globally about their long-term health and and keeping them healthy uh, now that they've overcome cancer. Excellent. So, well, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today is about childhood cancer survivorship and and the, uh, the childhood cancer survivorship program. So let's start really basic. How do we define survivorship? How do we define a survivor of a childhood cancer? You know, there's all sorts of different ways to define it. Speaking for our clinic, you know, in general, we define somebody who's more than five years uh, from finishing treatment as a long-term childhood cancer survivor. Though realistically, you know, when is somebody cured with cancer um, depends on what type of cancer and depends on who you ask. Uh, but in general, patients come to see us uh, about five years after finishing treatment or when their primary oncologist say that the risk of the cancer coming back is extremely low. All right. Perfect. Give us an idea. How many patients are we talking? When we think about childhood cancers and survivors, you know, I got to say as an adult oncologist, I, I'm a little jealous because it seems like uh, you guys do a a better job having survivors. I mean, just uh, a lot of factors for that. How many patients are we talking? So uh, in the U.S. each year, there's about 15,000 children diagnosed with cancer. And right now, um, there's about 80 to 85 percent of them will survive five years or longer. So, you know, roughly 80 percent of of that 15,000 kids are going to be cured. So uh, doing the math, I don't have a napkin in front of me, but that, you know, that makes about 12,000 new childhood cancer survivors a year. And a couple of papers have estimated that right now there's probably about 500,000 childhood cancer survivors in the U.S. Uh, we see a couple hundred of those in our clinic. So it's a it's a pretty common uh, pretty common phenomenon and really something we need to to take a serious look at. Yeah, I think you know if you think about it, you know 500,000 Americans it's it's a big number and a small number at the same time. It's you know one in 700 or so folks. Childhood cancer is not common, but if you walk down the street, a lot of people know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who had childhood cancer. So it's not at all that uncommon. So let's just jump in. Tell us about the program. What what, what do we have as a program and kind of how did it get started and where is it currently? You know, our program uh, sees a couple hundred. Uh, now, most of the patients are young adults that are childhood cancer survivors. Um, We're housed in the pediatric institute, um, but we see folks of all ages. So anybody who was treated um, in childhood or young adulthood for a cancer, um, we will see. We'll see people um, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. I haven't seen anybody in their 60s yet, but uh, I wouldn't be opposed to it if we had uh, somebody who wanted to see us. In general, what we're doing is trying to think, you know, kind of strategically about what types of treatment people got for their cancer and what are the long-term health implications. 
Um, so we take a look at somebody's treatment uh, and go over that with them and discuss all the you know potential risks for long-term late effects, so complications of chemotherapy and radiation and so forth. And then we have partners throughout the Cleveland Clinic Institute, you know, as a whole. So if you know, somebody received a chemotherapy that may affect their heart function. We have a cardiologist who's a point person on the adult side and the ped side. So depending on how old they are, we have somebody who's got some familiarity and expertise in dealing with um, complications of chemotherapy. And then the same goes across multiple other subspecialties. So we have a group of young adults who maybe got radiation to their belly as part of treatment. And those folks are at risk for colon cancer at an earlier age. So we have, you know, folks in gastroenterology who are well-versed in, in people that are high risk for colon cancer and can help out with that kind of stuff. I guess the other thing that I would add to that is, you know, one of the things we've spent more time focusing on in the last year or two are, you know, the psychosocial impacts of cancer survivorship. So, you know, our, our focus in cancer survivorship has been to a great deal on the medical effects of having received chemotherapy and radiation. And I think, you know, in the last several years, there's just been a lot more attention to what are the long-term psychological impacts? What are the financial impacts of having had cancer? Does this impact whether um, a teenager ends up applying to college or not? Does it put somebody uh, in a position where they can't change jobs because they're worried about health insurance coverage and so forth. And then we have so many people and parents too that have you know some degree of post-traumatic stress from their treatment and trying to identify different mental health issues that can go along with this and, and get people plugged in with the resources they need is also a very important part of what we do. And so I guess that was what, what I was going to ask is, you know, what, particularly with the, uh, the, the younger patients, uh, really the parents there, there's a big role there and you know fear of recurrence and financial impacts and things and and so is the program sort of designed to help both the patients and their caregivers or parents yeah uh both of those things are important and again you know the age range varies so when we are seeing people that are five years out from treatment you know the youngest people we see are six years old or something along those lines um, but we do try to address a lot of those things and identify resources for, for patients and families uh, as well. And in fact, uh, post-traumatic stress um, among caregivers is just as high as patients. And you can imagine if you have a very young child who's treated for cancer, they may not remember their, their cancer experience at all as an adult, but you better believe that their parents are going to have pretty strong memories of that. So as I recall, you have internal medicine training as well as pediatric training. And so you did mention seeing, you know, 20 or 30 or 50, um, you know, your 80-year-olds. Um, well, you know, you, if you have a long enough program, you'll see the 80-year-olds, yeah. right? Yeah, by the time I retire, right? Yeah. So you, that's that's maybe a little more unique than some uh, some that might be thinking about doing these survivorship programs. Tell me, tell me about handoffs in a survivorship setting, because I know that with some other diseases, that sort of um, handoff from a pediatric setting to an adult setting can be a little difficult. Yeah, that's like the million dollar question in survivorship is, is how do you run a survivorship program and, you know, how do you coordinate those transitions? Um, you know, there was a paper a couple of years ago that surveyed a bunch of internists. So, you know, adult primary care physicians asking about their experience taking care of childhood cancer survivors. And most of them in the last five years had, had taken care of either none or a small handful of patients and generally didn't feel particularly comfortable. So, you know, as you can imagine for somebody doing, you know, primary care, um, taking care of a childhood cancer survivor isn't their bread and butter. So getting these transitions right and helping, you know, primary care providers understand, you know, what are the risks to patients are really important. You know, some of that can be done with a treatment summary, but 
you know, at the same time, our recommendations for treatment are changing as we do more research. Um, and some of that can be done by empowering patients. So a lot of times when you have somebody that was treated at a young age, they don't even know that what they got for chemotherapy. So making sure that, you know, we're spending time educating the patients before they transition, you know, into the world of adult medicine so that they understand in general, what are their risks and what do they have uh, is important. Um, our program is a little bit unique. Like you said, um, I trained in internal medicine. So um, and, and pediatrics. So I did a, a med-peds residency. So if folks aren't familiar, uh, internal medicine residency is usually three years. And, and so is a peds residency. You can, you can do both in four years, which is what I did. And so I, you know, I'm a, I'm a board certified internist, although that's not, you know, generally part of my day job, but because of that, I'm, I'm comfortable taking care of folks of, of all ages. So, you know, to me, for our clinic, you know, there's no aging out. So those transitions aren't something that we have to worry about, but I think we're in the minority because there's only so many medbeats uh, folks out there. What are the most uh, common things that that we need to think about in terms of risk? So we've talked about, you know, risks and we talked about the psychosocial parts, but, you know, what are the things that are kind of the, the top players in terms of things that patients may experience later in life as a result of their therapies? So I, I guess there's two questions is, you know, what's important to us as doctors and what's important to us as patients, right? So I think the biggest questions that I get from patients when somebody trans, transitions to see me is, you know, hey, doc, are you sure this cancer is not going to come back? Oh, and, and by the way, you know, if I'm interested in having kids, is this something I'm going to pass down to my kids? Are they going to be at risk? And oh, can I have kids? I got chemotherapy. What does that all mean? So those tend to be the biggest questions we get when we meet a new survivor um, are related to, you know, risk of relapse, risk of infertility, um, and, you know, the genetic counseling aspect of things. From the fertility side of things, we can have general conversations with folks in terms of what chemo they received, what is their risk for infertility or subfertility. And we also have um, docs uh, here at Cleveland Clinic in the Women's Health Institute and in urology um, that are well-versed in taking care of folks with subfertility. Um, so that is oftentimes the most frequent questions we'll get from people uh, up front. Uh, and then I think from a medical standpoint, the two biggest things that I'm thinking about when I see most survivors are risk for secondary cancers and risk for cardiovascular disease. So in particular with folks that have received radiation, um, there's risks of specific cancers really that are focused on where did you get radiation? So if you're a woman and got radiation to your chest, breast cancer is gonna be a, a risk there. Um, if you had radiation to your abdomen uh, for perhaps a, a tumor in your belly as a young child, uh, an increased risk of colon cancer is there. And then getting um, folks plugged into the right resources so that they can get appropriate screening. Um, and then for many different types of cancer, cardiovascular disease is a big thing. So with different types of chemotherapy, you can have issues with the pumping function of the heart, cardiomyopathy. Um, with radiation, you can have valve diseases or um, issues with premature uh, vascular disease. And then across a lot of different patient groups, there's significantly increased risk of just having things like metabolic syndrome, diabetes, elevated cholesterol. So um, a lot of that stuff that, you know, we preach to everybody in terms of healthy living and exercise is, is part of keeping childhood cancer survivors healthy as well. So you mentioned fertility is one of the first things. Uh, I'm going to give you a minute or two to throw in a plug for people to pay attention to it. Do you think we're doing a good enough job sort of on the front end thinking about fertility preservation as we start treatments? So you oftentimes it sounds like you're getting people coming in and saying, hey, I went through chemo. What's my risk? And can I have kids? 
are we doing enough on the front end to, to, to ensure that's a possibility? Well, I guess on the positive side, thinking about fertility is we're doing a heck of a lot better of a job than we were, you know, a decade or two ago. Um, but I don't think we're anywhere near to what should be the standard of care, which is that anybody with childbearing potential should have a conversation before starting treatment and should be made aware of potential options before starting treatment. I mean, that's that's the standard in what we're shooting for and, and what we should shoot for is, is a oncology community. Um, I think we're a lot closer to that than we were in the past as we you know, realize many more people are surviving, that this is important to survivors. Um, but I think, you know, nationally and internationally, we're not where we need to be. You know, we have a fertility navigator in our pediatric group here who's wonderful. So uh, we do aim to meet with every new family um, and discuss fertility risk of the treatment they're going to get, potentially offer fertility preservation techniques to those folks, depending on what type of cancer they have and what their risk is. So survivorship can start at diagnosis in that respect, because although chemotherapy might make somebody sterile, um, there are options to do fertility preservation techniques often, which can preserve fertility. So that's one part of what we do from a fertility preservation standpoint. The other part is a conversation after treatment. So people may have had this conversation before when they were treated 10 years ago or five years ago, or they may not have. And then we're trying to find out what is people's fertility potential right now. There's a lot of childhood cancer survivors who have normal fertility potential. There are some childhood cancer survivors who have very poor fertility potential. And then there's a group in the middle that have issues with subfertility and getting those plugged into experts um, who can help make childbearing a reality is really important. In particular for women, women may have a reasonable degree of fertility uh, soon after treatment, uh, maybe in their teenage years, but they may be at risk of going through menopause at an earlier age. So Letting them know that there may be this window for fertility, but it's a smaller window, you know, than somebody who didn't get cancer treatment is also really an important thing to do. So we've talked about fertility, you know, when we think about other factors like the cardiovascular risk and things, anything that you find um, encouraging um, that's going on now in terms of trying to minimize risk as patients perhaps are getting treatment to maybe make that survivorship better in the future? Yeah, so cardiovascularly, um, I think the biggest thing in the last couple of years is the increased use of a drug called dexrazoxane. I don't know how much you guys use it on the adult side, but it's a drug that can help protect the heart from some of the effects of uh, a type of chemotherapy called anthracyclines. Um, so what we've seen in the pediatric literature is giving these drugs can help preserve the cardiac pumping function without compromising the ability of the chemo to, to treat the cancer. So I think realizing that that drug seems to be beneficial long-term and also not increase the risk for relapse or cause other complications has been really helpful. Uh, and with that, in pediatric oncology, we're using a lot more of that. The other thing that I think is also really helpful is uh, the way things have changed in radiation oncologies. For example, if you have somebody with a tumor in their chest, there's a whole lot of different ways of deploying radiation to that tumor to make it go away. And whenever you use radiation, you know, part of it's hitting the tumor and part of it's hitting healthy tissues. And in the chest, that's oftentimes the heart. So radiation oncologists have also gotten more thoughtful and the technology has gotten better so that they can really carve out their treatment plans to try to minimize toxicity as much as possible to important things like the heart. When you think about uh, a patient you may have treated for a leukemia, they sort of stay under your care. They kind of transition into a survivorship um, program. That's certainly one path. Um, do you have patients that may have been treated other places that'll seek you out simply for the survivorship portion? 
Uh, yeah, we do. I think, you know, the majority of the patients we see were treated at Cleveland Clinic and kind of graduate uh, upwards, but we certainly see our fair of share of people that um, might have been treated somewhere else. And, you know, they're um, maybe in their 20s and moved here for a job or came here for college or, you know, started a family in Cleveland. Interestingly enough, over the last couple of years, we've really established partnerships with a lot of different disciplines, um, particularly on the adult side um, for treating you know, long-term complications. So, you know, if you have a kidney issue, um, you know, there's a nephrologist in particular that we'll refer to. And interestingly enough, we've gotten a lot of referrals coming back the other way. So somebody who's got kidney disease is their main manifestation of problems from childhood cancer, hasn't seen any oncologist in years, but they are seeing a new kidney doctor and they say, oh yeah, you should, you should go talk to these folks, even though they're in the children's hospital, uh, you know, even whatever age you are, you know, it's, it's worth having a conversation with them. The other thing that's been helpful for us to reach more patients is virtual visits. So I guess, you know, that is one silver lining that's come out of the COVID-19 pandemic is that we're able to do these virtual visits a lot more frequently and effectively. So we can see people that are um, out of town more easily. So sometimes people find our name that way. But also it helps us stay in touch with folks we may have treated here who have moved on. So maybe uh, somebody, you know, was treated for leukemia at 10 years old here at Cleveland Clinic and has graduated high school and went off to college. And now maybe they live, you know, somewhere else, but they haven't been able to find somebody who's got some expertise in survivorship. Being able to do virtual visits and touch base with those folks has has gone a long way um, to helping us reach more people. What are the biggest gaps? What do you think is going to uh, overcome the problems with this being a more widespread um, service for children who have had cancers? Yeah, I think really that transitions of care is, is the biggest thing, as you mentioned before. You know, as a whole, there's only so many MedPeds folks um, out there. So depending on where you were treated, especially if you were at a children's hospital, uh, most of those folks are eventually going to age out and trying to effectively transition people is important. Um, you know, there's been a lot of work done in looking at survivorship care plans. How do you optimally create some type of document that, you know, can go with somebody so the manual of how to take care of them uh, can go with them? Um, but I think that only goes, you know, so far. I think specialized programs, you know, that's my bias, I think are important because, again, most people in the primary care world, it's not their bread and butter. And knowing, you know, what test goes with, you know, what chemotherapy received is not something that you're frequently thinking about. The Children's Oncology Group publishes survivorship guidelines every five years. Those will come out again in in 2023. And in the most recent update, which was done in 2018, they really focused on simplifying the guidelines so that um, more folks in the community would be comfortable with it. I think that goes a long way is not trying to make survivorship care super, super specialized, just, you know, make it straightforward so people can deal with it. I think those are big issues in childhood cancer survivors. And I think just the continued thoughtfulness about this, because I think, you know, as a cancer community, we're slowly getting better at treating all different types of cancers. Whereas before we were just trying to get the cancer to go away. Now we're trying to get the cancer to go away and have people thrive the rest of their life. So I think just increased thoughtfulness about this and thoughtfulness about the ways that we design clinical trials to, you know, reduce toxicity and so forth are important going forward. And then I guess lastly, on a, on a high note, what do you find most exciting in the area right now? I love this part of my job because you get to see the success stories and you get to see people thriving and living their lives. And I think that's a wonderful thing to be a part of it and to witness. From a medical or science standpoint, I think one of the things that we're learning about for survivorship is 
so much of the research that's historically gone on is is kind of, I guess, what you'd call epidemiologic research, you know, looking at an exposure and then looking at the long-term effect and being able to identify those things. And I think we've gotten really good at knowing what treatments cause what issues. I think now we're starting to better understand why those things happen. So looking, you know, on a, a cellular or molecular level is, you know, why does certain chemos cause problem? Why do radiation cause a specific problem? Because if we can understand those specific issues, that allows us to test new therapies to try to prevent or reverse those things as opposed to just identifying them. Excellent. Well, Seth, you've given us some great insight today and I appreciate you being with us. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. To make a direct online referral to our Toxic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.